Welcome to The Grinning Possum, a podcast about poetry, old-time music, geography, history, and interesting people who put their hands to work. I'm your host, Morris Manning. If it's homespun, homegrown, or just plain down-home, we tend to like it. We cover everything from leather britches to thunder mugs, pokeweed to polecats, and a heap of critters in between. We can even promise the occasional shoeless ditty and witty oddity. Our aim is to go from this to this. From a plain and simple beginning to something lovely most any raw materials can make. Each episode pokes around a corner of Appalachian culture and tradition and wraps it all up in a frolic. As one old timer liked to say, if you've got an itchy ear, just listen at this. And that's all you have to do. I'm a-going round this world, baby mine Yes, I'm going round this world, baby mine I'm going round this world, I'm a banjo-picking girl I'm going round this world, baby mine I'm going to Tennessee, baby mine Yes, I'm going to Tennessee, baby mine well, I'm going to Tennessee, don't you try to follow me. I'm going to Tennessee, baby mine. Yes, I'm going around this world, baby mine. Said I'm going around this world, baby mine. Well, I'm going around this world, I'm a banjo picking girl. Yes, I'm going around this world, baby mine. That's a song made popular by the great Lily Mae Ledford of the Coon Creek Girls who entertained many an old timer at the original Renfro Valley Barn Dance in Rockcastle County, Kentucky, beginning in the 1930s. I've got a tale or two about Lily Mae, but that will have to wait for another time. It's just a good song about going places and going places is a key theme of this our final episode of The Grinning Possum. And after some singing, it seems right and proper to listen to something else. Here it is. That's the call of the ivory-billed woodpecker recorded in the 1930s. The bird is now thought to be extinct, but it lives on in a curious story which I will now commence and for which I beg our listeners indulgence. It is a rather involved tale, yet telling involved tales and finding ourselves also involved in them is a keen interest, and there may be some value in learning how all of this ties together. It would be a stretch to call this place the cradle of civilization, but it is a place surrounded by rivers where things have happened. In the winter of 1811 to 1812, this was an especially interesting place. For our final episode, we are in Livingston County in far western Kentucky, overlooking the Ohio River. Not far from here is the site of Rocky Hill, a plantation owned by Lilburn Lewis, a son of Thomas Jefferson's sister, Lucy. We are standing, in fact, 30 steps from her grave. Another son, Randolph Lewis, built a home for his family nearby and called it Randolph Hill. A third son, Isham, would eventually follow as the Lewis family attempted to stake a claim in the mazy frontier. Turns out the Lewis brothers weren't terribly talented when it came to running a plantation. A further deficit is this bunch of inbred aristocratic bumpkins were ill acquainted with humor. Plus, they were hot tempered. One night in December 1811, Lilburn and Isham 
brutally murdered a slave whose only recorded name is George. Legend has it that the murder occurred on the night of the first New Madrid earthquake and the brothers disposed of George's body in the big kitchen fireplace not far from where I'm standing right now, assuming all evidence would turn to ash and smoke. A subsequent tremor, however, shook down the chimneys at Rocky Hill and revealed the skull of the murdered George. Finding the skull offered proof that Isham and Lilburn Lewis had murdered George, and they were now subject to trial for murder. Apparently, at this time in American history, one could legally own a human being but still could not murder one. In order to avoid a likely conviction and its consequences, the brothers formed a suicide plot to avoid trial and the likelihood that they would be hanged, but they botched it. Lilburn killed himself, and Isham disappeared into the maw of time, wandering like Cain into an American land of Nod. How the New Madrid earthquake of 1811 to 1812 frames this chapter of American history in this pinpointed place will be addressed shortly. But this murder in 1811 is not the only significant event to have occurred in this spot. This episode will contain some necessary repetition and variation because tales from our past beg repeating and even in our shining present, won't let go their hold. About 18 years after George's murder on this unmarked spot, the first Indians from the five civilized tribes passed through this same region in what became known as the Trail of Tears. Leaping forward from those primitive times a mere century in the winter of 1925, Floyd Collins got trapped in a nearby cave he was exploring with the hope that it could be opened to tourists who would be eager to buy tickets to see the underworld. Of course, the extensive network of caves in western Kentucky are formed by underground water, water that eventually surfaces and empties into the Ohio River not far from this very place. The dramatic effort to rescue Floyd Collins was the first time live radio was broadcast from the field. It made this region famous for about two weeks. The rescue efforts did not succeed and Collins died in early February 1925. Old Floyd Collins wandering the underworld like Dante, except Collins didn't get out, at least not alive. The tragic tale of Floyd Collins, the media spectacle and the entry of this tale into popular culture is pure 20th century America when we came into our own, or at least liked to claim so. But in the 19th century, this region where the Cumberland River empties into the Ohio and where the Tennessee River empties into the Ohio farther downstream was known as the land between the rivers when we were just getting started as a country and our doings had less polish. When the Lewis families settled here in 1809, of course, there were no bridges and the land between the rivers was a lawless and wild territory. Q. Robert Penn Warren, who began writing a Gothic poem in 1943 set in this exact region. He imagined a family, the Potses, who operated a ferry across the Tennessee River. The Ballad of Billy Potts tells the family's dark tale and much more. Big Billy and his wife have a son named Little Billy. Of course, Little Billy grows up and takes up his father's line of work, which is, in a word, violence. Old Testament sin. Ironically, Little Billy has a birthmark in the shape of a cloverleaf under his left tit. We might say it becomes a latter-day mark of Cain. Here's how Robert Penn Warren imagines these people who settled the frontier. Their names are like the leaves but are forgot. 
the slush and swill of the world's great pot that foamed at the Appalachian lip and spilled like quicksilver across green bays, the unfulfilled, disparate glitter, gleam, wild symptom, sea, flung in the long wind, silent they proceed, past meadow, past salt lick and the lyric swale. Enter the arbor, shadow of trees, fade, fail. Virtue, according to this poetic vision, had no place at the table of reality. When Warren was writing this poem in the utter darkness of World War II, this region of Kentucky was slowly filling with water. Through a New Deal entity, the Tennessee Valley Authority, a dam had been built on the stretch of the Tennessee River that crosses the southwest corner of Kentucky that eventually formed Kentucky Lake. A similar dam was built on the Cumberland River several years later, which made Lake Barkley. Much of the original land between the rivers is now underwater. People were forced to move, entire towns were flooded into oblivion. In fact, one can ride in a boat today over what used to be barns, rail lines, roads. One thing to say about this geography, it is the home to real history and it is also a home for imagination. Some history, perhaps, becomes true because we can imagine it. Some history is true because we cannot imagine it. And the rivers carry it away, and time carries it away. And then we remember, and then we imagine. So here is a poem that attempts just that. Time is the hum of God's dream and the artist disappears into the art. The pang of being home and then the sharper pang of being not at home in time as if time could be a calculation whose meaning could be before it passes known as if the meaning of time could possibly be known before the time is gone. Though time is never gone, yet never is time to be reached such that time will cease or seem to cease its passage. It never passes and never stops. God's hum and the people who belong more to the dream than they belong to the world, though the world is in the dream and you belong to them and the dream and the pinched river etched world inside the dream, the dark redemption and the country play that plays it out by urge and impulse to return, the art of return and the dimmer art of answer once the return is glimpsed or grasped and savored marrow-wise as the art of being born before, the vision impossible to reach and thus the pang, the leading ache that onward drives the only art beneath the gloom and soft glow of trees beside slow waters. Because the sin and redeeming grace have been received in equal measure at once, the double inheritance, the sin like a splinter stuck in the soul, the unaccountable fact of grace and the people clad in dark rags with hogs and mules and hunting dogs, wander through the pitch of time, believing at the end is light, and you belong to them and time, and take your place in the pilgrim throng, not going home, but home going forever, as far as anyone can see or fathom, which twists the pang of knowing we are not on our own, but time is the hum of God's dream and we belong to the dream's ditty and hum along and unremember, unknown, unspeakable, unlost, the almost impossible art of hope, which is the gift of being alive and being born a second time. You as a scarecrow, you as a bird, to perch on the scarecrow's bony shoulder and love, though not to heal the hurt, yet oversee the patch of green 
spread out like a woman's skirt. An interesting figure from American history was actually present in this place and time and later wrote of what he saw, though some of it he didn't see. John James Audubon came to this region of Kentucky to paint birds. He painted the ivory-billed woodpecker. He heard this king of birds. He came to the hinterlands, and here he found his passion. As Warren asks in a long poem meditating on Audubon and what he saw in the realm of nature, for what is man but his passion? Here are the words Audubon wrote regarding this time he lived in Kentucky in the still primeval first two decades of the 19th century. Traveling through the barrens of Kentucky, I was jogging on one afternoon when I remarked a sudden and strange darkness rising from the western horizon. Accustomed to our heavy storms of thunder and rain, I took no notice of it, as I thought the speed of my horse might enable me to get under shelter of the roof of an acquaintance who lived not far distant before it should come up. I had proceeded about a mile when I heard what I imagined to be the distant rumbling of a violent tornado, on which I spurred my steed with a wish to gallop as fast as possible to the place of shelter. But it would not do. The animal knew better than I what was forthcoming, and instead of going faster, so nearly stopped that I remarked he placed one foot after another on the ground with as much precaution as if walking on a smooth sheet of ice. I thought he had suddenly foundered, and, speaking to him, was on the point of dismounting and leading him when he all of a sudden fell, a groaning piteously, hung his head, spread out his four legs as if to save himself from falling, and stood stock still, continuing to groan. I thought my horse about to die and would have sprung from his back had a minute more elapsed, but at that instant all the shrubs and trees began to move from their very roots. The ground rose and fell in successive furrows like the ruffled waters of a lake, and I became bewildered in my ideas as I too plainly discovered that this awful commotion in nature was the result of an earthquake. I had never witnessed anything of the kind before, although, like every other person, I knew earthquakes by description. But what description compared with the reality? Who can tell of the sensations which I experienced when I found myself rocking, as it were, on my horse, and with him to and fro like a child in a cradle, with the most imminent danger around, and expecting the ground every moment to open and present to my eye such an abyss as might engulf myself and all around me. The fearful convulsion, however, lasted only a few minutes, and the heavens again brightened as quickly as they had become obscured. My horse brought his feet to the natural position, raised his head, and galloped off as if loose and frolicking without a rider. I was not, however, without great apprehension respecting my family, from which I was yet many miles distant, fearful that where they were the shock might have caused greater havoc than I had witnessed. I gave the bridle to my steed and was glad to see him appear as anxious to get home as myself. The pace at which he galloped accomplished this sooner than I had expected, and I found with much pleasure that hardly any greater harm had taken place than the apprehension excited for my own safety. Shock succeeded shock almost every day or night for several weeks, diminishing, however, so gradually as to dwindle away into the mere vibrations of the earth. Strange to say, I for one became so accustomed to the feeling as rather to enjoy the fears manifested by others. I never can forget the effects of one of the slighter shocks which took place when I was at a friend's house where I had gone to enjoy the merriment that in our western country attends a wedding. The ceremony being performed, supper over, and the fiddles tuned, dancing became the order of the moment. This was merrily 
followed up to a late hour when the party retired to rest. We were in what is called with great propriety a log house, one of large dimensions and solidly constructed. The owner was a physician and in one corner were not only his lancets, tourniquets, amputating knives, and other sanguinary apparatus, but all the drugs which he employed for the relief of his patients arranged in jars and files of different sizes. These had some days before made a narrow escape from destruction, but had been fortunately preserved by closing the doors of the cases in which they were contained. As I have said, we had all retired to rest, some to dream the sighs and smiles, others to sink into oblivion. Morning was fast approaching when the rumbling noise that precedes the earthquake began so loudly as to awaken and alarm the whole party and drive them out of bed in the greatest consternation. The scene which ensued it is impossible for me to describe, and it would require the humorous pencil of a crookshank to do justice to it. Fear knows no restraints. Every person, old and young, filled with alarm at the creaking of the log house and apprehending instant destruction, rushed wildly out to the grass enclosure fronting the building. The full moon was slowly descending from her throne, covered at times by clouds that rolled heavily along as if to conceal from her view the scenes of terror which prevailed on the earth below. On the grass plat we all met in such conditions as rendered it next to impossible to discriminate any of the party, all huddled together in a state of almost perfect nudity. The earth waved like a field of corn before the breeze. The birds left their perches and flew about not knowing whither. And the doctor, recollecting the danger of his gallipots, ran to his shop room to prevent their dancing off the shelves to the floor. Never for a moment did he think of closing the doors, but spreading his arms, jumped about the front of the cases, pushing back here and there the falling jars, with so little success, however, that... Before the shock was over, he had lost nearly all he possessed. The shock at length ceased, and the frightened females, now sensible of their dishabille, fled to their several apartments. The earthquakes produced more serious consequences in other places near New Madrid, and for some distance on the Mississippi, the earth was rent asunder in several places, one or two islands sunk forever, and the inhabitants fled in dismay toward the eastern shores. A couple of notes to share in response to Mr. Audubon's account. First, this doctor who held the wedding dance may have been one Dr. Arthur Campbell. We know a doctor of this name lived in the area because two years prior to the events Audubon relates in the summer of 1809, Dr. Campbell was summoned to treat the children and slaves of Lilburn Lewis for malaria and other ailments. This Dr. Campbell obliged. In the fall of that same year, Dr. Campbell and Lilburn Lewis returned to civilization, as it were, to Lexington and spent some time in Danville, which happens to be my hometown. Why they stopped in Danville cannot be determined, it is certain that Dr. Campbell was not an ordinary country doctor of the time. He'd obviously received advanced training. Perhaps he passed through Danville to confer with another doctor, soon to gain renown for performing the first ovariotomy, Ephraim McDowell. Their families had all come from the same planter-founded region in Virginia, and the two doctors may have known each other. Meanwhile, Lilburn Lewis had sent his two daughters to a girls' academy in Mercer County, Kentucky, because there were no such institutions on the frontier a couple of hundred miles west. Our listeners will recall that two of our earlier episodes were recorded in Mercer County, the one-room schoolhouse and the old mud meeting house. And here, at what was once the limit of the American reach, we find the irony that seems to trap our history. And to comment on this truth, I resort to what Robert Penn Warren has to say about this early 19th century history 
in the middle of the 20th. I am trying to write a poem and not a history, and therefore have no compunction about tampering with facts. But poetry is more than fantasy and is committed to the obligation of trying to say something about the human condition. Therefore, a poem dealing with history is no more at liberty to violate what the writer takes to be the nature of the human heart. What he takes those things to be is, of course, his ultimate gamble. This is another way of saying that I've tried to make my poem make, in a thematic way, historical sense, along with whatever other kinds of sense it may be happy enough to make. Historical sense and poetic sense should not, in the end, be contradictory, for if poetry is the little myth we make, history is the big myth we live, and in our living, constantly remake. Well said, kind sir, and yet I wonder if we were asked to choose which truth would we take. And that unsettled choice painfully and plainly bristles the hide of our present moment. It's also worth noting that Audubon, in his account of this primitive time, makes mention of the Mississippi River. It will seem like a side note, though not for long, that Audubon had a faithful dog accompanying him as he traveled through the countryside in search of birds to paint. The name of his canine companion was Plato. Audubon was also something of a musician and could be heard playing his flute or fiddle to pass an evening in the wilderness. Now the scale of our small story broadens to touch the grander tale. Had I the temerity and a few inches of rain, I could launch a canoe into the stream that runs across the front of our farm and follow along to the Gulf of Mexico. It would take a while, but eventually I would pass the same spot below this bluff on the Ohio River where in 1803 the Discovery Corps, otherwise known as the Lewis and Clark Expedition, floated by. That same spot in 1811 is where the wedding party occurred and Audubon had his rocking horse experience and Dr. Campbell's medicines danced off the shelves. It was also in this place in 1811 when Lilburn Lewis and his younger brother Esham brutally murdered a slave named George. They summoned the other slaves of the household and made them watch as Lilburn murdered George with an axe. Then they dismembered George and put his remains in the fireplace. It was George who was sometimes sent to Dr. Campbell's home seeking treatment for members of the Lewis household that summer of 1809. Lilburn and Isham Lewis were sons of Lucy Jefferson Lewis, whose grave is 30 steps from where I'm standing now, and she was Thomas Jefferson's sister. On this spot in February 1812, the final big shake of the New Madrid earthquake shook down the main chimney at Rocky Hill, Lilburn Lewis's plantation home. This exposed the bones of George, some of which had not been consented to dust and ash. Apparently, George's skull was intact, which was soon discovered because Lilburn's dog, whose name was Nero, was found to be gnawing on George's skull which a neighbor observed, and thus Lilburn got turned into the authorities. And below this terrible scene, the river flowed on as the other rivers joined it. In fact, this bluff of ground in far western Kentucky receives water from every watershed that has been covered in the several episodes of this podcast. An interesting coincidence, because I can sure our listeners this kind of confluence was not at all planned. And there's more. In 1828, a young Abraham Lincoln floated, unknowingly of course, below this same spot, ferrying a load of hogs to New Orleans. In 1830, following the federal government's passage of the Indian Removal Act, the first groups of Indians to suffer the Trail of Tears came through this region 
on their way farther west. In 1831, Alexis de Tocqueville floated down the Ohio just below this spot and well could have paused here at the port, gathering field notes for the book he would write, Democracy in America. The plantation homes the Lewis family built, Randolph Hill and Rocky Hill, are all gone, and some of the region traveled by Daniel Boone, Lewis and Clark, Audubon, and Thomas Jefferson's nephews, as well as their slaves, is now underwater after the Tennessee River was dammed in 1943 and the Cumberland about 20 years later. And a place like this is similar to the one where Mr. Audubon first spied the ivory-billed woodpecker and shot it and painted it that we might see what this majestic bird that is no more once looked like and imagine the spirit it possessed when it was alive. One thing's for sure, the 21st century has not seen the last of the 20th or the 19th or the 18th. We have a point of American history where many of our national stories run together, a place flooded by our history that flows inevitably and inexorably into the flood of time. It would seem, too, that Mr. Audubon foresaw elements of this larger story. Here is some of his commentary about the ivory-billed woodpecker, which he wrote to accompany his painting. I wish, kind reader, it were in my power to present to your mind's eye the favorite resort of the ivory-billed woodpecker. Would that I could describe the extent of those deep morasses overshadowed by millions of gigantic dark cypresses spreading their sturdy moss-covered branches as if to admonish intruding man to pause and reflect on the many difficulties which he must encounter should he persist in venturing farther into their almost inaccessible recesses, extending for miles before him where he should be interrupted by huge projecting branches, here and there the massy trunk of a fallen and decaying tree and thousands of creeping and twining plants of numberless species. Would that I could represent to you the dangerous nature of the ground, its oozing, spongy, and miry disposition, although covered with a beautiful but treacherous carpeting composed of the richest mosses, flags, and water lilies, no sooner receiving the pressure of the foot than it yields and endangers the very life of the adventurer, whilst here and there as he approaches an opening that proves merely a lake of black muddy water, his ear is assailed by the dismal croaking of innumerable frogs, the hissing of serpents, or the bellowing of alligators. Would that I could give you an idea of the sultry, pestiferous atmosphere that nearly suffocates the intruder during the meridian heat of our dog days in those gloomy and horrible swamps. But the attempt to picture these scenes would be in vain. The flight of this bird is graceful in the extreme, although seldom prolonged to more than a few hundred yards at a time, unless when it has to cross a large river, which it does in deep undulations, opening its wings at first to their full extent and nearly closing them to renew the propelling impulse. The transit from one tree to another, even should the distance be as much as a hundred yards, is performed by a single sweep, and the bird appears as if merely swinging itself from the top of the one tree to that of the other, forming an elegantly curved line. At this moment all the beauty of the plumage is exhibited and strikes the beholder with pleasure. It never utters any sound whilst on wing unless during the love season, but at all other times no sooner has this bird alighted than its remarkable voice is heard at almost every leap which it makes whilst ascending against the upper parts of the trunk of a tree 
or its highest branches. Its notes are clear, loud, and yet rather plaintive. They are heard at a considerable distance, perhaps half a mile, and resemble the false high note of a clarinet. They are usually repeated three times in succession and may be represented by the monosyllable pate, pate, pate. These are heard so frequently as to induce me to say that the bird spends few minutes of the day without uttering them, and this circumstance leads to its destruction, which is aimed at not because, as is supposed by some, this species is a destroyer of trees, but more because it is a beautiful bird and its rich scalp attached to the upper mandible forms an ornament for the war dress of most of our Indians or for the shot pouch of our squatters and hunters by all of whom the bird is shot merely for that purpose. There is plenty of striking metaphor in this tale that this bird's bright crest was sought as a human ornament, thereby driving the bird to extinction is no small irony. The three rivers that flow and now surround this place seem symbolic. The sudden violence of men against their living property has the effect of subverting the very idea of ownership as if what one claims to possess now becomes what one wishes to dispossess but woefully cannot. But the scale of symbol and metaphor in this sordid and awful tale refuses to stay flat or sit still. It's all in motion, and the past will not sit quietly in the past. That the new Madrid earthquake causes the chimney of the fine home at Rocky Hill to tumble, thereby revealing the terrible moral wrong, feels like poetic justice or divine intervention and that spills the story into the unending and unknowable allegory of time. There is, finally, an interesting tale within the tale to some of this Jefferson family lore and infamy. When the Lewis families, there were three households in all, made their journey from old Virginia to remote West Kentucky beginning in 1807, they traveled first to Pittsburgh or close to it so they could put their people, including about 35 slaves and belongings and livestock, onto flatboats and float down the Ohio River. They arrived in Kentucky near the end of winter in 1808, a journey of over 1,300 miles that came with many hardships. Finally, though, they reached the bluff over the river here in Livingston County, where Lilburn and his brother Randolph owned adjoining parcels of land, each several thousand acres. A third Lewis brother, Esham, would follow later. Titles to the Lewis lands had been certified in Richmond, Virginia, since most of Kentucky had originally been an extensive western county of Virginia. And this being an American adventure, Randolph Lewis had acquired more Kentucky land than he could manage and intended to sell parcels of his extra holdings for a profit. Much of the land in Kentucky the settlers came to were land grants, which functioned as payments to soldiers who had fought in the Revolutionary War. The titles to this additional land that Randolph Lewis had acquired with the intention to sell were originally surveyed in 1785 as land grants for Revolutionary War veterans. These grants, many veterans quickly realized, could be sold to a second party, and that is how the Lewis family acquired their lands in Kentucky. In 1808, Randolph offered for sale over a thousand-acre parcel of land he'd planned to finance his other doings. This potential transaction was advertised with the promise that title to the land for sale had legal status certified by Kentucky's second governor, James T. Garrett. This Garrett fellow, 
was my great-great-great-great-grandfather. Garrod's second term as governor of Kentucky overlapped with Jefferson's presidency and coincided with the formation of the Corps of Discovery, otherwise known as the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Most of the men who served in the Corps of Discovery were recruited from Kentucky, including the lone black man, York, a slave owned by William Clark. It is clear from the sparse historical record that my ancestor exchanged written correspondence with none other than Thomas Jefferson. He also would have seen and heard a real live ivory-billed woodpecker. And the tributary that watered his property in Bourbon County, Kentucky, eventually empties into the Ohio River and flows by the property once owned by Lilburn Lewis, Thomas Jefferson's nephew who murdered a man named George the night the earthquakes began, December 15, 1811. It is also known that James Garrett came to the town of Danville several times when Kentucky's Articles of Constitution were being composed. I was raised 200 years later, about a quarter mile away. At this point in the tale, within the tale, I am inclined to say, Dear Lord. Here's what little I know about James Garrett as far as my handed-down family lore is concerned. He came to Kentucky from Virginia thanks to a land grant because he was a Revolutionary War veteran. He'd even escaped captivity from the British military. Once in Kentucky, he got into the business of salt-making, by boiling water from salt wells and springs until a residue of salt was left in the large iron kettles. The salt works were based in Clay County, Kentucky, from which my father's people hail. Forks of the Kentucky River flow through Clay County and the rendered salt was transported on flatboats across Kentucky and down the Ohio River passing by the place here in Livingston County where the Lewis families would settle and fail. James Garrett built himself a handsome home, Mount Lebanon, in 1786. It too was damaged by the New Madrid earthquakes between 1811 and 12, but Garrett insisted on repairing it, which he did, and the home still stands today. My kinship to a man like James Garrett comes from the fact that some of his descendants stayed in the mountains and married up with the hillbillies. This led to all manner of other stories we shall have to save for another time. My great-great-aunt Clara Birchall lived to be 108. She was related to the Garrods both by blood and by marriage. I'm going to play a recording I made of her when she was 102. She was a great storyteller. In this recording, she's talking about planting trees. One of the trees she and her husband planted before they built their house is a pecan. That tree is still alive today. She lived near Goose Creek where some of the salt in the old days was rendered and sent downstream when the water was high. I don't know if Aunt Clara ever heard an ivory-billed woodpecker, but she may have. And it could have been that such a bird fretted her old tree and turned it into music. That's a daydream I won't mind having as it flows along. Because it burns in, yeah. it's got limbs, it reaches everywhere up in the garden and over there in the pasture and here in the field, in the yard and everywhere. And those, uh, those uh, pecans, There's some years they're good, some years they're not. Yeah, I've seen them after it fell off on the ground, you know. Yeah, yeah, I've seen them. Some of them's real good and, and some of them don't have thing in them. Capitola used to let to come out there and get them, pick them up, you know. She enjoyed them. And here is a poem I wrote several years ago, imagining one family tale from the salt-making days by the river. 
I didn't have as many pieces then as I do now, but now it seems a different poem than I ever intended. Another River Still It rains in the morning when the sun has climbed the farther side of the ridge to gaze down mine maternally and with a penetrating eye eventually to pierce until it turns to drops the frost which is spread like gossip in the gang of trees and left their upper branches stiff as if they disapprove the stream continuing its night-long chorus below the ridge in low company. That is why I like this kind of rain and keep away from gossipers and all they were reserved about besides is going melted now and fallen in with the wayward stream. An old ancestor of mine, one of the feuders, as we say, floated a flatboat of salt one day from the mountains down the Kentucky River. And when the boat arrived downstream, it was only the boat and the salt that ever arrived. He'd married a woman named Alabama from Tennessee, one of the lovelier ironies on the branches of our family tree. I've always wondered how they met in 1835 or six and wondered to think about her grief, how suddenly it must have come and turned that thought around in my mind too long and to no apparent purpose. He was an independent man, apparently, though not enough for the river, which rises twice a year when it has a mind to rise and rage. The little stream below my ridge assumes that temper too, but then goes back to being beautiful. I don't know why thinking about these things in the absence of clear metaphor is so encompassing. The ridge, the dropping frost, the river, the stream, the old man lost, the pile of salt arriving white and silently. The American frontier was settled by schemers and hucksters, profiteers, cheats, liars, and opportunists. It was founded on violence and treachery in a place of pristine beauty. Some of the settlers, however, were sober and decent-minded and believed they could, along with their neighbors, build a place where people could live and not destroy themselves, each other, or the blessed place. From the vantage of our present moment, that ambition remains a tall order. So we remember and imagine and tell and walk the places above the waters washing us into time. If you've followed us this far on the podcast, maybe you yourself have become a believer, which is interesting because to record our very last song, we are in the meeting house 
of the Shakers here at Shaker Village at Pleasant Hill here in Kentucky. And the Shakers called themselves believers and this room is where they celebrated what they believed. to the Grinning Possum, a podcast from Kentucky. If you like what you've heard, please share it with a friend. Thank you kindly for your time and keep it in your pouch. The Grinning Possum podcast is written and performed by Morris Manning. The show is engineered and edited by Steve Cody and is funded with a grant from the Kentucky Arts Council, the state arts agency, which is supported with federal funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. The recording of the ivory-billed woodpecker was used with permission from the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology.